0: We're going to be talking about all cool things related to browser extensions, browsers, extensions, extending extensions, browsers, extending browsers, all the other fun stuff. You guys excited for today's episode? Yeah, absolutely. In this episode, we have me. My name is Stefan. I am the co-founder of Plasmo. We make browser extension dev tooling. But we're thinking about actually branching off to other kinds of extensions and stuff. Maybe we can talk about it as well. And then we have Louis Louis. You want to give yourself a little bit of intro? Hey, what's up Louis Virgo, CTO of I'm building stuff with Plasma. Commander in Chief. <laughs> and my name is Mo. I do not work at Plasmo. I am the odd one out. I am just a browser extension and browser aficionado. We can say that. But in how I actually make money is I work at Sigma OS, which is building a new way to use the internet. What I'm working on is making the Chrome extension APIs work on WebKit, which has been a frustrating but interesting challenge. Um What is the most interesting thing that you attempted so far? Maybe not the most interesting, but the most like frustrating is just realizing how far behind WebKit is lacking in the in the web standards, so I've already written like a bunch of polyfills, JavaScript polyfills, just because WebKit does not provide these web APIs. It's been super annoying, um, but I'm a JavaScript developer at heart, so in terms of doing the work, writing those polyfills, I actually enjoy it. But it is super annoying trying to fill in these gaps where WebKit shouldn't be lagging behind. Like the the rendering engine is probably the fastest in terms of rendering and painting. I think it is, if we take the benchmarks. But I think lagging behind on standards trumps that. Like definitely, that is the core feature of the web.
1: The simplest market has no
0: social skill. Yeah, exactly. It's defeats the purpose. So lots of websites just do not work on WebKit or Safari. For example, the website we're using right now to record this podcast, I tried opening it in Sigma OS and Safari, and it said no, you have to go to Chrome. It's probably detecting some features missing that it needs, and which actually I wrote a polyfill for earlier this week. Could be the the WebKit get user media API, which is used to capture the camera and microphone.
1: Yeah, the audio yeah. encoder on Safari is actually different compared to audio encoder on Chrome and Firefox. Yeah. Sure. you yeah. know that's why when i work on my previous startup i have to make my own audio encoder and make it into a web and because these are you know, these are like very expensive modules to run right and like audio encoder you have to use all kind of self worker modules to run them Could you actually tell
0: us a little bit more about that at your previous startup what this was the one where you were building the
1: where you guys were building the browser or this is something else this is a before plasma this is before Ivan and i was talking about building plasma and i jumped ship but The previous startup, I was the lead engineer for a company called Ponder. It's an enterprise coaching type application for enterprise team. It's one-on-one catch up asynchronously between the manager and the team members through async voice kind of chat. It was a web application or like a name? It's webhook. Yeah. Web app It's actually yeah, it's a multi-platform app, cross-platform. The audio encoder that you wrote was like a polyfill for Safari. It's not even a polyfill, it's a custom encoder using mp3 lib. So the reason why I have to use mp3 is because iOS can only play mp3 back then. This is back before iOS 14. iOS 13 and 14 can only play mp3 natively as well. mp3 was the only format that can actually be used across web and mobile native. And so that's why I have to write my an audio encoder that use lame lib lame to do all the encoding manually and get to learn all about this this slipping thing with the yeah, you have to in the build and use raw buffer to storing your audio. And then yeah, that's how you do encoding, right? You basically just filling up the buffer. You send it over to the next encoder to do like the chance, yeah, the coding to MP3 and so on and so forth. So a lot of layer required. The cool thing about that code base was that we have a single kind of top level layer of audio handling so that I could swap out the native audio handler with the web audio handler. I can even be more specific with the platform as I can use user agent to get a bit more granular with how I want to swap to the specific audio encoder or the audio engine. Now the key problem is we do want the people who record on Chrome, their audio file, we want their audio files to also be available for the people on Safari and also native. So that's why on the web, I just use the exact same encoder of all of them. And I'm suspecting that the issue we're seeing with Zencaster as well is the as you can see, after we finished Zen casting run, right? they have an MP3 option. And that's probably why, yeah, because the MP3 encoder on Safari actually very, very bad. It actually, oh, it didn't work back in iOS 13. So my iOS, I would say iOS 14 or 15, they, I think they might have fixed it based on whatever. You guys once told me that you guys worked on a security focused browser for enterprises
0: how far did you guys get along on that project so we were looking at when we started we had this idea it was more the problem we wanted to solve was there's a lot of security issues a lot of them stem from the browser so why not tackle it at the root so the first thing we did was okay how do we solve this problem of people see bad things in their browsers and we want to prevent them from Seeing them, or we want to prevent them from taking actions that are detrimental to them and the company that they work for. And we had two approaches. One was, hey, let's actually build out an entire browser. The other was, let's tackle a sub problem of that gigantic problem because that problem is huge to tackle. If you solve that problem, you solve security. So, congratulations. We decided, let's tackle a sub problem and let's actually build an extension so the sub problem we tackled was people don't know what malicious means on the internet so when you look at an email you can have like different heuristics like oh i'm gonna hover over the links i'm gonna do all this other stuff why because you've been trained right maybe you had like phishing simulations maybe you've been burned before someone fished you over email so now you know better and so on but People aren't doing that anymore. If you're a Lazarus group, so Lazarus group is a bunch of North Korean hackers. They're usually financially motivated. The way they fish is through LinkedIn. So I'm going to create a fake LinkedIn account. I'm going to create a completely fake background, everything like that, make it seem like I potentially am one of your colleagues, right? At the company you work for. It's a big company, so who knows that I'm not real. And I'm gonna send you a connection request i'm gonna message you saying hey i talked to your manager but unfortunately he was away can you just click this powerpoint for me i need you to do something etc cetera, etc cetera. people are prepared for things like that so we wanted to build a simulation experience where the extension would inject fake linkedin connection requests fake messages everything would be on the client side linkedin wouldn't even know what's going on and we would do this for linkedin we would do this for if you're on google maybe there's a sponsored ad And that one's malicious, just preparing your employee base for the future of threats, which isn't just email, but everything. So if you guys would just inject these fake phishing attacks, and if an employee clicked on one of these links, a pop-up would say, ah, you're fired. You messed up. Yeah. So, so we could even go further. And that's the cool part because in these standard phishing simulations, once you click you're away from their environment, unless they have their own like server and stuff like that. But usually they don't track that. They only track the clicks. And the issue for me, coming from like the security background I I came from, clicking shouldn't be an issue. If an employee clicked on something, that doesn't mean that they did something wrong. Clicking is very natural, very normal. The part where it shouldn't happen is when they start entering credentials when they start downloading malware and executing it things like that so with this approach when they click we would actually take them to a suspicious page and then they would if they did all the things poorly and then they click on the login button or something after they submitted their password then we would have a screen saying hey and then we would also even be able to write then and there because the context is already there, we would be able to say, hey, in this step, you should have noticed that this was weird. And then we would point at the URL bar and say, you take a look at the URL, make sure it's fine. Basically it using it as a teaching moment. And then also on the back end, when you look at the security team that implements this, they can actually get stats like how many people fell for this thing, that thing. You can get a view into how risky your organization is like maybe linkedin for some reason the sales team falls for his linkedin stuff all the time so maybe now you should devote a little bit more time to training them or potentially doing other things like that so that was what we were building do you think it would get annoying for the employees knowing that they have this extension installed and there's a somebody watching them and now they have to be super careful
1: if you look at yeah. some of the corporation, right? Even most corporation deploy something like this already. But they send email instead. Of it. They were sending them an email, say, "Hey, oh, hey, this is an email from the CEO. Click this link, please. Sign in, mm, like, yeah. and they click that. They go to your page. They put the credential, in, it's boom. Oh, you got Paul. Too bad, boy. Something like that, right? Yeah. So basically, what we were building is extend on that idea. They were applying this, but they're gonna they go to deploy to other planes too. Like social media is a huge vector of attack. In it's what the firm talked about. LinkedIn is based the next current email right now for business.
0: And you want to hear the craziest part about that? It is right. It's the next, it's basically the next email. But the issue is when you look at email, there's nine different layers of defense. You got one vendor in the pipeline, looking through the links, making sure they're not malicious and you have Gmail doing the spam classification. Then you have another vendor you're paying that checks the attachments. And there is this whole pipeline of security tools that go between you and an external email sender. But LinkedIn is literally just the LinkedIn security team, which sure, they're probably great, but it's a gigantic platform. I don't think they can handle everything. And also you as an organization don't have visibility into what's going on, because obviously it's a huge privacy implication for you to be reading your employees linkedin messages so if they're speaking to a threat actor you have no clue whereas with email if it is a company email all that stuff is basically through the company so you can look at it and stuff in case you're doing an investigation but to the other point it's a trade-off between the idea that we had was yes this could get annoying so anytime a threat actor gets access to your account it's not great but some people it don't have like high privileges they don't have things of that nature if they get their account taken over it's not the end of the world so maybe for them you don't show it as often maybe it's like once a quarter or something like that and then for people that are i don't know system administrators people in like vp positions or something then you would show it more often just to manage that risk so you would take like a risk-based approach was what we were thinking and were you guys planning on having this only for linkedin or other Kind of sites as well. Maybe like email or maybe Slack. Yeah. Uh, Google We started with LinkedIn and we reached out to a lot of people, you know, security people, CISOs, VP of security and all these sorts of different companies. We talked to
1: a lot of them, like a lot and nobody wanted it. They don't need it yet because there's no huge incident. I think that when... These can say blow up more when there's more money down the drain. Then people will start investigating. That's the thing about security.
0: Companies, organizations, institutions don't really think about security until there's a security breach. That is the biggest kind of flaw in of security in general. It's never implemented until it's too late. Most security attacks stem from like a psychological or social attack it's not most of the time i don't think it's a like a technical security issue it's just people getting fooled people getting fooled by security attacks i think that's how most phishing attacks happen for example you guys said like uh, a ceo messages you or somebody new that you're working with so a new person you've met recently in your life and they said you something or somebody pretending to be them Sends you something and without batting an eye, you want to reply to them, click on their link that they send you, and then bam, you're attacked. So that is one of the kind of psychological factors that cause security breaches. I think that's what most of them happen.
1: I th- when I when we were doing that, I observed is that a lot of the security stuff that people have to do, really, is because of sell. People do security attestation so that they can so they make a sell to bigger company or to people who require it. Otherwise, they wouldn't care. many care.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Like one of the what one of the kind of customer segments we were trying to target because of this insight was companies that just recently got their SOC 2 compliance. So those would be startups that quote-unquote care about security. So that's the approach we took.
1: By the way, actually, I want to go back to the topic on the WebKit extension. Yeah. So, I so you were saying you have to make a bunch of polyfill. What language did you make these all appeal in? JavaScript or something native? No, we're JavaScript. All JavaScript. Yeah, that's, it's
0: either that or we build our own, or we use our own distribution of, of WebKit, which we aren't doing yet. So whenever something's missing in WebKit, that's what that, we, the only thing we can do is build JavaScript, JavaScript polyfills. The API endpoints that we're missing always start in JavaScript, right? Because that's what the web page is using web APIs, which are written in JavaScript, but if there's something that needs a little more like from the native side, then we have a JavaScript and Swift bridge. So our JavaScript can communicate with our Swift code. And so sometimes we have like a communication back and forth. The only thing that sucks about this is that whatever API you're polyfilling, if you want to do something on the Swift side within that. JavaScript polyfill by sending a message, that web API has to be asynchronous because to cross the JavaScript to switch to Swift bridge and to come back to JavaScript to call the callback, it's a cross-process, interprocess communication, which has to be asynchronous. So I've run into some limitations there.
1: I think most API, a most complex API, wanted to be some kind of a asynchronous. I had to write a... Not a polyfill per se, but I had to
0: allow browser extension background pages content scripts to bypass core's policies. Lots of times, extension developers will put JavaScript inside of a script tag and then append that script tag to the DOM so that the JavaScript inside the script tag runs in the main world of the web page. And on Chrome, this works fine all the time, even if the web page has a content security policy that disallows it. This is by design content scripts are supposed to bypass this content security policy. However, in WebKit, we have in in our extension platform, I had to build this from scratch because the default WebKit configuration does not allow for this. Whenever the content script injects a script tag with some JavaScript inside of it into the DOM, I take that JavaScript that's inside of it and I tell Swift to run it. So that way it can bypass the web page and bypass the content security policy. That worked great. However, Now, this JavaScript code has to be run asynchronously. Otherwise, normally it would be running synchronously. It runs asynchronously because, again, I have to communicate with Swift to tell it to evaluate this JavaScript in this web page. But me telling Swift, me crossing that bridge from JavaScript to Swift is an asynchronous call. There's no way to do that synchronously. So this JavaScript has to be executed asynchronously. For most extensions, this is not an issue, but with one extension, it was expecting that JavaScript code to be run synchronously and causing that to, the extension to break only in websites that have a constant security policy that do not allow inline script text. So haven't found a solution for that yet, but that is one limitation, unfortunately. And the only thing we could do about that potentially is, is run our own distribution of WebKit. So we'd have to fork WebKit and then make our own edits inside of the WebKit C++ code, right? But we're avoiding that right now, because it, that can come with a lot of headache as well. 19. Sounds like you needed an extension for WebKit.
1: Yeah. I wish that was possible. That actually remind me of Blink, the Chrome engine. There's a goal for that back in 2015. Microsoft has done is integrated that Blink engine into most of their Microsoft app because they bought it up for Electron. Actually, there is Electron in itself, the whole Electron engine and project. And I think that whole segment of using the blink engine across windows is one of the initiatives that we are still seeing now actually with a lot of the new application for example i think window terminal share the blink engine with the edge because edge is included in with windows always and so within the window ecosystem there's always the blink rendering engine on the OS, it's very similar to the web page. it's the same model by the way so the idea is that you have a single kind of rendering engine internally right and then all the other apps, and it's really the exact same thing. So I think that idea that WebKit has is also being
0: promulgated in other OS. Yeah, it's not a new thing, right? We had no. this with, like,
1: DirectX. Precisely. We had this with all these different game engines, right? DirectX is the exact same thing. But a lot of game engines ship with their own kind of engine. So you have to ship the entire thing. But- so you bundle it with your game. Precisely, yeah. But the DirectX, back in the day, was separate. Yeah, totally separate runtime. Even now, too, some some Microsoft software, we require you to actually install the runtime, the Microsoft SDK runtime, so that you can use it without having to have, so you can use the shared library, right, of, of from that runtime. So let me ask you
0: that question then, Louis. What Mo was saying just now was, if you're relying on this system version of WebKit, you can't customize it to potentially what you want it to do there is that limitation and if you do want to customize now you have to fork it and so on are there because of your game dev background this is why i ask are there any examples of people taking one
1: of these game engines and customizing it to suit their needs yeah, and yeah a lot yeah precisely it's actually the case for a lot of game engine actually even unity there's a game called subnautica is a game made in unity actually but the rendering of that game is so impressive it can in- it render the entire water world That is very- it's actually I would say one of the most impressive in rendering, by the way But it's used UED which is one of the worst Not one of the worst, it's good But it's not the best rendering engine to rendering Like this vast ocean of creation and stuff But they have to shift, basically what they do is You know, this actually happened with a lot of game studios too Which, they take the game engine And most game engines, for example EUD, Unreal, Godot and almost any image nowadays, the one that's free and available. For example, the studio that makes Samuel Sacrifice, bought by Microsoft for $2 billion in 2019, they make, they actually, right, because Unreal Engine is open source. You can fork it, you can compile the entire mod, the entire code base module, and you can add your custom module in server runtime. That practice is very common within game design, and especially for game engine that's open source and available for everyone, because that's actually one of their main goal, one of their key point of having a game studio is that you have to start but either you start from scratch right? and you make your entire engine or nowadays, thankfully a lot of these engines have a lot of flexibility that you can just take the engine add one you need into it and you're good to go yeah so they were able to so Subnarga is one example where they were able to replace the entire rendering engine in Unity with their own custom
0: what is the difference between a like what is the separation between a game engine and the rendering engine does the rendering, just yeah. do the painting. And where Precisely. the game engine does all the, the, the actual you know, physics
1: calculations and stuff like that. Precisely. A game engine encompasses everything, right? It has audio, it has scene editor, it has like a uh, physics, right? It has rendering, it has material editor. It also has all this component, like views and editor, level editor, right? Key component of a game engine and also a, a, script, a scripting layer, right? For a developer, but. A lot of time, right, the rendering engine shipped with the server, with this game engine, especially for Unity, back then was not the best because it actually used a C-sharp runtime. And a lot of it's running on the CPU. They offload some of that with the shader language, which their own shader language, right, back in the say It's like half-baked OpenGL. But the thing is that people can actually replace those, replace those module. Because I think it was most of those kind of rendering engine was dynamically linked library so dl so they simply drop, drop a dl into the engine directory and now you can swap the entire thing
0: in this case mo you're using webkit like you're using wk Web, webkit view and that is presumably loaded from some library on the system so technically could i just create my own replace that system library and now safari and all these different apps as long as i guess I get yes, can. all the signing and everything like that. It's there. Yeah, you can. And it's pretty simple to do with WebKit, actually. So you download a WebKit from the open source repo, build it. And then there's some actually some command line tools that come with WebKit that allow you to run your build of WebKit with Safari or with any app that links to WebKit. So the actual environment variable is called DYLD framework path. And you point that environment variable to your build of WebKit. And then any app that you spin up that uses your systems build a WebKit will point to your build a WebKit instead. Your build a WebKit will become the, by definition will become your systems WebKit. So you could spin up Safari right now with your own build a WebKit. You just have to download the source code, build it. And there's a command that comes with it. Command line tool called run with Safari or something like that. Or you could manually set the D Y L D F to your, you could do it yourself if you wanted to. So yeah, it is very possible. I was messing around with WK web views when I actually wanted to research how to use Frida. Have you guys heard of Frida before? So it's this really cool reverse engineer toolkit. And primarily it's used by people that do iOS jailbreak kind of stuff, but it does so much more than just that. And one of the things you can do is you can hook into a process on your computer and you can write JavaScript code to interact with that process. So one of the examples is like, you can search for all of the different objects that were instantiated with a particular class, Objective-C class. So one of the things I tried to do was like with Sigma and because and, it was using WK WebView, right? So I was like, okay, let me inject into the Sigma OS process. And now I can search the process memory with this Frida tool in JavaScript for any instances of WK WebViews. Okay, I got that. Now I can actually call Objective-C functions of that object. And I managed to print out a little alert, hello world using actually, I'm pretty sure it was what you were just talking about Mo, which was the user script thing. So I sent a user script to the active tab saying alert, hello world. But I think it's really cool that they have this interface that lets you send stuff and I feel like more software should do that. I think having that ability is really powerful.
1: Frida it's called? F-R-I-D-A. Yeah. It that, it's not really built in, right, to the software. is really, it's a reverse engineering toolkit. So. So, so
0: the, so Frida is designed to make tools that don't exactly. have open interfaces. But the thing is, if I went into WK WebView and they didn't have this function where I can give it code for it to execute, it would make my life a lot harder. I think it would actually be, Next to impossible, I would have to spend like maybe three months figuring out how to do it because you have to inject into the memory where maybe the JavaScript is being executed and then send like new JavaScript, stuff like that. But because they had this open interface, it was much easier to work with on top of that objective C is so much more open to a more compiled language, let's say like C or something, but that was my foray into like, how can we make software that isn't extensible more extensible it's a headache right but what if what if there was an sdk imagine so like frida is super low level right it's okay people have maybe done a little bit of reverse engineering can get by and figure it out maybe it is a headache but you figure it out but what if there was something a little bit more higher level where people have already done the grunt work figured out how to inject an alert box into a web view and then now they just make that Module. Right, if you had some other high-level software that, that abstracts Frida, for example, or some of the process that Frida does, then you can get to that level where it's not a headache anymore. But to be honest, to answer your question, which was, how can we make all software extensible? That was your question. They answer to that question, at least in my opinion, if extensibility was not was not in mind when building the software, then I don't believe that software should be extensible. Because you have to get all hacky about it. Cool. And that was the end of this episode. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Hope you all have a happy new year. It's the start of 2023. And really happy to continue this podcast from 2023 all the way to 2033. We'll see you guys again in two weeks. And take care.